Welcome to Season 2 of the Doctor's Dilemma Podcast. This season, we will explore more in depth behind the sacrifices physicians make and how they have paved their way towards success. We'll also explore a wide array of healthcare topics and provide information about free medical services for the underserved and under-resourced in New Jersey. Let's dive into the show. Hey guys, welcome back to The Doctor's Dilemma. Today, I have an amazing physician, Dr. Paresh Goel. He's actually now a great friend of mine and he's been a great mentor to me where I am today in terms of my own medical practice. He's the one he actually helped me and inspired me to be able to start it and having my own practice, it's starting to really pick up. I really wanted to bring him along because I thought that he would have a lot to offer. So Dr. Goyle has been in practice since 2010 and is the founder of Desert Mobile Medical Concierge Physicians. He grew up in New York metro area and completed his BS and MBA in finance and economics at St. Jones University in New York. He attended his medical school at MS Ramia Medical College in India. And he completed both his internship and residency programs at Brookdale University Medical Center in New York. Paresh Goel is a board-certified physician by the American Board of Internal Medicine. Uh, He has worked in hospital medicine at the Lake Havasu Regional Medical Center, Banner Thunderbird, and at Honor Health, Shia and Osborne campuses, as well as Banner Baywood and the Heart Institute. He has honed his skills as a primary care physician, geriatrician, and internist in private practice, and being employed at Geriatric Solutions. He has served as a hospice director for Hospice of the Valley in the recent past as well. He's currently the medical director of Modern Recovery Services and Springboard Recovery. He also sits on the board for several nonprofit organizations, continually striving to provide superior patient care, along with bleeding edge state-of-the-art medical technology. Dr. Goel started Desert Mobile Medical Concierge Physicians in 2018, aiming to provide comfort, convenience, and transparency in a healthcare industry that is stifled with poor customer service and opaqueness. Dr. Goel is also a national speaker on health and wellness, a published author, and is fond of teaching the up and upcoming generation of future doctors. He is a wonderfully cute daughter of two years of age whom he loves to spend time with. He loves to read up on history and has a passion for cooking. This episode is sponsored by Mobile Medicine NJ. Because your health is our priority, we have made it more accessible and comfortable for you. The time for waiting to get high-quality care, having to rush to the urgent care or the ER while panicking or feeling like you're a hamster in a wheel is over. Because today, you can access anything with the click of a button. It's time that you can directly access your personal physician 24-7 with that same click of the button and do so at your time and convenience, at the comfort of your home, where it suits you and your family best. It's concierge care without the concierge price. Learn more at mobilemedicinenj.com. Dr. Gall, seriously, thank you so much for being on part of the show. And I really appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Dr. Manzur. So, you know, getting right into it, I think there's so much we can talk about. I feel like speaking with you, we can go on and on. But tell me just with your day, you know, tell us what's been going on with this COVID-19 in uh, Arizona currently and how are you handling the front lines? Yeah, let me start off by saying, you know, Arizona is not probably going to peak with their COVID cases till probably mid to late April. We're a lot behind the curve compared to the Northeast where you live in terms of the amount of cases. The governor on the 31st of March invoked some executive orders limiting 
and basically stabilizing what everybody in the country has been doing in terms of social distancing. Mm-hmm. My practice has cooled off in terms of actually going out and doing house calls, partly because I myself am practicing social distancing. A lot of my patients are elderly. They might be immunocompromised. And rather than being a uh, transmission vehicle for COVID, potentially, I've been uh, converting a lot of my visits to virtual visits, either by phone, text messaging, or video conferencing. You know, one of the benefits of having bleeding edge technology and, and being able to utilize that well ahead of the curve of what's going on in current day medicine has allowed us to really benefit immensely from technology and being able to provide this even in days of well prior to COVID. No, I think it's amazing. I think the world currently is starting to catch up with telemedicine. You, on the other hand, who've had your practice for almost over a year now, you've been doing this for the longest time. And on top of that, you're a mobile doc. You want to fill us in and how you ended up being where you are today? Yeah. You know, when I was growing up out on Long Island in New York, my pediatrician used to come and visit the house when I was sick or my sister or brother were sick. And so that was my first introduction into being seen by a house call physician at a very early age. My dad's a cardiologist, still actively practicing in New York. Well, not currently. He's, uh, he's taking a break because he is 75 years of age and considered him in a compromise. So he's closed his office for a little bit. But, you know, while I was growing up, I was kind of disillusioned by what a physician is. I didn't realize my dad was actually a workaholic. But, you know, being a young person and seeing your dad as often, I had associated medicine with exactly what I saw, my dad not being available for me. And so for that reason, I basically shied away from the business or the practice of medicine and wanted to obtain a business degree. It wasn't until I tore ligaments in my left knee and had to undergo a reconstructive surgery of my ACL that I actually fall in love with medicine. It was actually an orthopedic surgeon that was my original mentor going into medicine. Wow. You know, interesting. It sounds like you had an interesting route into becoming a physician. I think you answered one of my, my biggest questions that I ask, you know, what inspired you to become a physician? And I think in your case, it looks like you grew up thinking physicians are a certain way, but then you went through this change that affected your, essentially your whole life course, right? So, yeah, I mean, you know, my sister, who's 13 months older than me, she's a board certified internist, my dad being a cardiologist, it, uh, it seemed almost intuitive and probably my destiny to be a physician, (laughs) coming from a a family of physicians, Um, I kind of fought it off. But, you know, at the end of the day, having a passion for what you do, really doesn't make it feel like work. You know, I enjoy every aspect of what I do these, you know, as a physician, in particular, the clinical aspect of medicine, to actually relate with a patient, to be able to touch a patient and know what kind of pain they're feeling and to be empathic in in that certain way, I think lends to having a great bedside manner and being a great physician. Absolutely. You know, from just speaking to you and uh, just amazing the amount of things you've accomplished at this point in your career, it sounds like you weren't that traditional student that was like from day one, I want to go into medical school. Because like we all know that, you know, in order to get into medical school, you're supposed to be wanting to do it for the longest time and you're supposed to build up the CV. 
to get into it. So it looks like you decided late. So share with us, how hard was it to get into medical school and what pre-med school preparation did you undertake or did you feel like you were just going to do it and then just go straight at it? Yeah. You know, growing up in a first-generation conservative household, academics was always on the forefront. And while excelling at school, I was always taking honors classes, especially in sciences. Even though I didn't like it personally myself, biology, chemistry, physics, that was all that was required for me to, to get into medical school in India was those honors classes. So in terms of any pre-med workup, yeah. And so was difficult was the transition, I think, of my mindset of how to study going from a multiple choice, A, B, C, D type of answer, question and answers to a more broad, long note, short note, where uh, a long note required about five to 10 pages of written essay work, short notes, page to three pages, was the stumbling block. I think, obviously, any medical student will tell you anatomy and your first semester in school is the most grueling. Yeah. You don't get any sleep at all you're doing. It's just reading, reading, reading. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. I remember my first week, I remember going to like day two, day three, and they're like, oh, you're going to feel like drinking from a fire hose and it's just going to hurt and uh, just keep doing it. Don't stop because if you stop, you're going to fall behind. I was like, what kind of bullshit? But to be honest, that's what it felt like. And every medical student who's now a physician or still in medical school right now knows that's exactly what it feels like. Yeah, I think, you know, there's enough hurdles for physicians going from, you know, pre-med all the way to being a board certified physician. There's so many hoops that we have to jump through and prove ourselves. And I think it's also a way that can, I guess, work, weed out the meek that have aspirations to be a physician, a board certified physician, but just can't get there. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong. I know you didn't talk about it. You did work in Wall Street, right? Correct. So from Wall Street to, you know, medicine and then this specific field, you know, internal medicine that you chose, what is it in your training or let's say your medical school that got you to choose internal medicine or did Wall Street play any kind of role? I think I was always inquisitive in nature. You know, truth be told, I was still geared to be an orthopedist until I actually went to the operating room. And for those of us who have not done rotations in orthopedics, you won't know what the smell of an operating room from an orthopedic standpoint. <laughs> it's uh, very disconcerting, to say the least. And that's what steered me away from wanting to be an orthopedist. What steered me towards internal medicine was the fact that, you know, being inquisitive in nature and always trying to be a problem solver was what I loved about internal medicine. It's, you know, the great Sherlock Holmes of medicine. You know, to be honest, I think you're more than that. The reason I say that is if anyone is trying to do a direct primary care practice in New Jersey, they know the hurdles they have to overcome. I remember when I was trying to do it, I was like, holy man, I can't do it. And then I remember just talking to you and you just were like, so what? It's a hurdle. Figure out the solution. And I, and I remember the biggest thing was I was trying to establish a company and I was like, oh my God, I don't have an office. I can't afford it. You're like, get a virtual office. I was like, what the hell is a virtual office? Believe it or not. Like that concept in itself, your ability to just think outside the box, I just adapted it and I adapted it and I've come up with solutions to be able to do essentially what anyone does anywhere in the whole country when they do direct primary care without any restrictions, without violating any law. So I think you definitely are a lot more than, you know, in terms of medicine, you're very like good at, I believe it, no matter what, you know, you're very, very good at finding solutions 
outside of medicine? Is this something that you've always done? Like, where you always think outside the box? Or is this something you feel like you developed maybe uh, perhaps on Wall Street? I don't know. I think it's twofold. I think inside the box as well as outside the box, I'm able to look at problems in different aspects and really put myself in the shoe in terms of medicine in the shoes of a patient and say, well, how would the patient be feeling at this time? And then, I, you know, in terms of business, I think, yeah, Wall Street did prepare me for the business of medicine. A lot of physicians do not get any training in private practice or the business of medicine. Coming out, a lot of them are, are steered towards hospital medicine at this point because, you know, to be able to do the front office, back office mm-hmm. of a, a current day private practice is quite overwhelming for someone that has no training. Yeah. You know, interestingly, in becoming a physician, it's a very, very hectic job, especially medical school and residency. You know, we were just talking about it, I think, earlier before we, we started the recordings. You know, you're a residency, you're a resident of the hospital is all you do. So it's, it's not easy to become a physician. And then on top of that, and a very successful entrepreneur. So like share with us, which hurdles did you personally face and how did you overcome them? Did you ever feel like there was a point where you're like, I don't want to do this anymore? How'd you do it? I don't think it was ever a point where I said I didn't want to do this anymore. I think, you know, there's always the questions that arise after you feel like you were failing. You know, the first uh, six to eight months when I opened up my practice, there was, you know, this uncertainty as to whether I was succeeding or my perception of succeeding. Mm -hmm. I tried my best, you know, to go out every day and say, you know what, I have a business plan. I created a 10-year business plan. It's a roadmap, a blueprint of where I need to be. If I just Mm -hmm. follow this blueprint or roadmap, it'll get me from point A to point B. You know, really, that's how I've always approached something is to be prepared and have a roadmap or a blueprint to see because you've already consciously or subconsciously worked on a majority of the issues that might come ahead of you and present themselves. And so if you can work those problems out at the beginning, I think it makes the trip a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Can you think of any specific hurdles that you felt like you really had to overcome and then Like, what sacrifices did you make to overcome them? Well, I mean, I still have not taken a salary from my company, continue to reinvest back into the company. And that's, I think, uh, something of fortitude when it comes to the business acumen, knowing that when you're still continuing to have a growth trajectory, you don't want to stifle that growth. And I think that's been one of the most hardest things is to, you know, relax on your laurels type of thing. I see. I see. So during your practice or say your residency, how often did you see patients and what were your thoughts on like the amount of effort, rather the amount of stress put upon residents? Did you feel that you were treated fairly throughout your residency or did you feel that, you know, it was absolutely fair system? Oh, absolutely not. But I think I put myself in that situation. You know, a couple of days ago, CNN started airing my actual hospital where I did my training in Brooklyn. I think every half an hour it was being rebroadcast about the the importance of the doctors, the PPE, and ventilators in what short amount there are, especially in, in a very underserved area in Brooklyn. I had always wanted to return back to the hospital where I was born, where my dad did his, not only his residency, but his fellowship in cardiology. 
I kind of set myself up for it because, you know, a lot of the attendings already knew who I was. And so life became a lot more difficult. I had, I had to prove myself beyond a normal resident. I had wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps and do critical care and, and cardiology. And so my second and third years were filled with either doing ICU call or coronary care call, uh, which was every fourth day, 24-hour calls. In ICU at Brookdale Hospital, you might have 40 to 50 patients under your care for ICU this needs. And so I've always been one with the understanding that I wanted to have as much pathology and as many patients under my belt in my training days prior to coming out. I don't think there's ever been a patient that I've seen since I've graduated and got my board certification that I didn't think I know that I can handle their care, you know, and that ease of care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So, you know, I guess it'd be interesting to ask and love to know how you feel about this. And I think physicians look into it, know it, especially, you know, you do primary care, you know, I do primary care. So we definitely know the average amount of time a patient spends with their primary care doc is about, you know, seven to 10 minutes, some say 12 to 15, but it really is seven to 10 minutes. Like, what are your thoughts on that, right? Like, you know, when's the last time you went to a barber who's cut your hair in 10 minutes and then sent you out? You know, like, how do you feel about the government or rather the insurance companies setting up a system where patients feel like they don't have a choice and they have no choice but to see their primary care doc and that's the time limitation they have? What are your thoughts on that? I absolutely hate it. That's I think any doctor will tell you that that's not the reason why they got medicine to be an assembly line physician. They got into medicine to actually take care of patients, be able to listen to them. You know, most patients, when they walk into an insurance-based practice, they're told, I'll deal with one or two of your problems. Well, that's not practicing medicine. You know, that's some assembly line nonsense where, you know, truth be told, doctors, when they get to the point where we are at, you're a great doctor. You want to do great things for your patients. Unfortunately, because reimbursement continues to dwindle year after year and kind of bottlenecked by these uh, insurance companies and these hospitals, you realize that all the money is top heavy. It's always kept at the CEO and the C-suite level. And that's the reason why the care at the bottom is so atrocious. One of the reasons why I started my direct primary care practice at very affordable rates was for the same reason that any doctor went to medical school. And that was to just take care of patients, not have to fill out paperwork, not have to, to adhere to unheralded and non-evidence-based data collection by the government and insurance companies. You know, anything that Medicare has uh, brought out in terms of data collection has never shown any benefit for patients' longevity or quality of life. And for that matter, it's why are we collecting all this information? You know, Mm -hmm. who's looking at this information? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The government (laughs) moving at the slow speed that it tends to. (laughs) Interesting you mentioned that, you know, we know it, we're in the system and any of the other docs that are listening to it, you know, know it, it really comes down to it being about the money and not about the patients. And those people, you know, who are patients are listening to it you know, you should definitely look into it, right? Look into what it is that really goes on in the system. And I do always recommend a book. There's a good book called Catastrophic Care by David L. Goldhill. I think he does a phenomenal job in the book talking about how the system is so fucked, literally. But uh, anyway, so you're doing a lot, right? You're running a practice. You haven't paid yourself in over a year. You're expanding like crazy. How well do you exercise work-life balance? 
quite well, actually. You know, having a direct primary care practice, you're a, I would say, a rat or a mouse off the wheel. You're no longer doing assembly line medicine. Most doctors would die for the quality of life that I've been able to obtain while, while continuing to take care of patients the way that they want to be treated and the mm -hmm. way they want to be taken care of. When you think about work-life balance, that's one of the reasons why I decided to get out of insurance-based practice. I was getting burnt out. When I did have time off, I was miserable, just wanting to sleep and relax just so that the start of my next row of shifts, I could be able to cope adequately. Now it's because I love what I do. I wake up with a smile on my face every morning, excited to go see patients, excited to have the prospect of growth in my company, as well as to be able to enjoy time with my daughter. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to handling stress and handling burnout, that's, you know, caused by, I would say like the kind of work that you used to do, right? Now it's completely different. Now it's, you do what you love, but do you recall the stressors that you have to undergone and you mentioned possible burnout? How do you go about resolving these issues on a daily basis? And how do you overcome that? You mean in the past or now? In the past. In the past, you know, it was a multitude. I think I was very irritable at all times. And I think that one aspect has really changed in my life. Become much more relaxed, not on edge anymore like I used to be. I'm sure you remember during your training days that anytime a, a pager would go off, you know, it's like you'd get a little atrial fibrillation, a little <laughs> because you'd be like, oh my God, what's going on? Am I asleep? Am I awake? You know, that, it seemed to follow me in hospital medicine, a lot less in hospice. But, you know, there was the trials and tribulations of, of being kind of a pencil pusher when you're doing hospice. It's a lot of administrative work and very little clinical medicine, which now that I can do a majority of clinical medicine, I'm back to where I want to be. Nice. So I like your take on, you know, the way you come, I guess, around in terms of letting go of the system. And now you're out the system, you're loving what you do, but, you know, there's still physicians that are in the system that are depressed, you know, that are burning out, that are committing suicide. So, you know, like depression, it's a very, very widespread phenomenon. It's often tagged as a serious disorder. And usually, but unfortunately, it's not usually attended to, especially when it comes to physicians. Like, what is your take on suicide that's caused by depression among medical professionals? You know, I think we're geared to be robots, be told. You know, we're never given the education of what our stressors would be in training. We're just expected to show up and perform. You know, I was told in my residency days that you better be on your deathbed if you don't show up. And that was an actuality. Nobody ever called in sick when we were in residency. Mm -hmm. We just showed up. And even if we were sick, we were expected to take care of sick people. You know, mm -hmm. and having that robotic mentality, I think, needs to change. I think the overall learning curve for residencies in this country needs to be expanded in terms of how many slots are reserved for residents. You know, not many people know where the money for residency programs come from. And that comes from CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. During my time, they used to pay $180,000 per resident per year to get trained. I don't know what the amount is now, but, you know, you would think that there would be some mandates in that amount of money that's being transferred. We want our future doctors to be trained to be able to handle stressors. 
you know, mm-hmm. especially in a time um, where doctors are in such high demand during these COVID days and times that there's undue stress uh, again being applied upon physicians to perform beyond all costs. Again, all costs meaning your own well-being. And, you know, there's a parent um, ever evident look back as to why there's a, such a shortage of doctors in this country, especially frontline physicians like internal medicine and family practice, mm-hmm. because there's no money in it, right? You're slogging along in residency, and then you realize that, hey, I've amounted so much debt up until this point, I need to start paying off this debt. But mm-hmm. if, I, if I do a couple more years of fellowship and I specialize, hey, I can make so much more money. Yeah. And so I think there needs to be an overhaul, starting with insurance and Medicare payments on how they're distributed. Looking at socialized medicine, I think is is probably the wrong look at the way medicine needs to change too. The fact that we have such innovation in this country is based on the capitalist system. You know, I guess from my Wall Street days, I'm still a big capitalist. But I think that when you look at what a an effective measure is to grade a physician's work based on RVU unit, I think makes no sense. You know, when I approach a patient, I always tell them at the end of my conversation on my initial visit, listen, by the way, you know, I don't practice medicine like other doctors. Mm-hmm. My final outlook of how you're going to perceive the way I'm conducting medicine is how I improve your quality of life. And truth be told, when someone's on their deathbed, nobody talks about the car they drove or the house they lived in. They talk mm-hmm. about their experiences that they had and the experiences that they missed out on. And so mm-hmm. I always tell my patients that bucket list is going to be really short and small because I want you to go and experience as much of life as you possibly can. And how I can get you there is the teamwork that's being applied as a physician. Oh, absolutely. So there's still physicians in the system that, as I mentioned, you know, are struggling. What advice can you give them when it comes to handling work-related stress and what they can do about, you know, their own careers and, you know, their futures? I think one is to probably take a step back and realize that are you a cog in the, in the system? Are you perpetuating the worsening of this decline in RVUs because you continue to get money from a system that's failed? Mm-hmm. You know, Albert Einstein used to say doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. Mm-hmm. And so why don't you look at why you continue to be in a system that's failed and continue to expect a different result. Mm -hmm. I think that's great advice. You know, those who are in the system should know and understand there's there's a way out. In primary care, I think definitely there's a way out. And even specialist care, they can, you know, set up a system and you are doing it. You know, we primary care docs are doing it. I believe specialists can do also. They can find a really good niche and be independent. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the assembly line type of insurance industry practice model, the primary care is considered the gatekeeper. They bring you in for three to 10 minutes of an office visit, yet they send you to six to seven other specialists. 90% of what we trained as internal medicine physicians can be done through an internal medicine physician. You don't need to refer anybody. 
and that's what I end up doing. I tell my patients that, hey, listen, unless you want a referral, don't expect a referral. Mm-hmm. I can a major- large majority of this, the 10% in your lifetime that I can't deal with will require something like a specialist, like a surgeon, like a cardiologist that has to put a stent in, you know, end of life care or hospital, you know, acute hospitalization. Those things I can't do as a primary care physician, but those are things that you'll need and I can get you there. But if I can prevent, increase your wellness, we're looking at a lot less incidence of me sending you to a specialist or to a hospital. Yeah, absolutely. Any of the DPC docs that do this know how effective they are in saving the system money and it's just a system and the world just don't realize, you know, what kind of role docs like you play in the lives of people and indirectly in terms of the spending that happens within the system because you said it, you know, as an anyone who's trained in internal medicine and even family medicine knows that they can manage most of anything as long as they're given enough time. You know, as medicine is medicine, it's just procedures. Like you said it, need a stent. All right, now it's time for you to go to a cardiologist. Need this. I can't do this. Now it's time for you to go. Otherwise, it's medicine. You can do it. Yeah. I mean, 2019, the first full year of my practice, I had a 2% hospitalization rate, 0% to urgent care, and 0% of workers' comp cases. And so I think that's, you know, not to applaud myself, but that dedication of a physician to actually listen and adhere to what the patient needs increases their quality of life, increases their efficiency at work, creating accidents at work because they're 100% there. Absolutely. So I guess there's one burning question. I'm very curious to see what you would say. It's a personal question. You can choose not to answer it, but I'm really curious, you know, like, because just how successful you are and what you're doing. If you didn't become a physician, what would you be? I'd probably be a sailor on a boat by myself, uh-huh. traveling the seven seas. I wish I could avidly travel. I don't get to as much as I would like to. You know, growing up on Long Island, I could always go to the beach and I look at the horizon. And it was very peaceful for me, even envision something like that. And, you know, to be out on a boat and just looking at the horizon would be very peaceful for me. Mm. I honestly didn't expect that answer. I thought you were going to say run for president or something. <laughs> I'm sorry, what did you say? I thought you were going to say run for president or something. <laughs> I don't think I could take that stressor at all. I applaud whoever becomes president. It takes a lot of gumption. No, absolutely. But listen, it was an absolute pleasure having you on here. You know, I really appreciate your insights, your thoughts on you know how you became what you became and the advice that you have for other physicians so thank you so much for making time out of your very busy life to be a part of the show i really appreciate it absolutely thanks for listening if you found this episode helpful please subscribe and leave us an honest five-star review on itunes google play or any other streaming service See you in the next episode.